You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Physicians are leaders. Patients look to them to lead and manage their care. Physicians frequently lead an office or hospital staff, and depending on their interests, lead teams of researchers, collaborative clinicians, and educators. Are great medical leaders made or born? Here to discuss developing leadership and medical education is Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School and former Dean of the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as former Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Harvard, Dr. Joseph B. Martin. Joe, welcome and thanks for coming to the studio today. Marty, thanks very much for having me. I'd like to uh, talk to you mainly about leadership, but actually I'd like to start with a little bit of your own personal history. It's sort of interesting, I think. Uh, you're, you're a Canadian, I think, and grew up in a relatively rural part of Canada. And I just wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you came from that rural Canadian background into becoming a leading academic physician. Well, I was born on a farm in uh, southern Alberta, not far from Calgary. And from my earliest memories, I uh, had an aspiration to be a doctor. I think it probably derived from visits to our community of missionaries who spent time in Africa and India, and it seemed like a wonderful thing to uh, be engaged in that kind of activity. My parents were very supportive. I struggled through high school because I was in a very small community high school to get the grades required to go to pre-medical school at the University of Alberta. But in medical school, went very well, and it was probably during that time that I met one of the mentors, and I will emphasize mentorship over and over, who encouraged me, not that family practice or missionary work wasn't good, but that I might want to consider specializing in doing academic medicine. And that led me to move to the States, where I met a second great mentor, Joseph Foley, who you know. Oh, yeah, Joe Foley. Joe Foley was the head of neurology at Case Western University Hospital. And my first meeting with him was the key moment in my life that led me to neurology. Really? I was thinking of cardiology or hematology as options. But meeting Joe Foley turned the trick, and uh, I was delighted when he accepted me as a resident in his program in 1964. I was turned down by the Massachusetts General Hospital, by the way, because they didn't open letters from Alberta, Canada. <laughs> I can easily believe that. <laughs> you, you probably knew some of the people involved with that. I think, so, yes. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. So it was during my residency that I got interested in what became my first career in research, which was the hypothalamus of the autonomic nervous system. It was really, as often happens, patient-driven. I saw four patients who had postural hypotension, idiopathic, shy Drager syndrome, we mm-hmm. now call it. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in the endocrine responses of these patients when their blood pressure fell. And that led to a paper and then to my decision to do uh, further research, which led me to Rochester, New York. With where, uh, Seymour Reichland. With right? Seymour Reichland, yeah. who really most would say is the father of neuroendocrinology and certainly North America. He spent time in England, trained with Sir Geoffrey Harris, who was the first to describe the hypothalamic pituitary portal system of blood flow. So Sai became my third mentor. He was just an extraordinary leader in science and someone who got along well with everyone. A polymath, incredible intelligence, 
but he had no enemies. And that, for me, was a very important lesson. Yeah. When Andrew Shalley and Roger Gaiman won the Nobel Prize for their work on hypothalamic releasing factors, they wouldn't talk to each other, of course, but Sai was friends with both of them. Yeah. And a remarkable yeah. example of what I think is critical in leadership is to be generous and to recognize strengths in people without being critical of them. Well, this is, I mean, it's a very good transition to what I really want to talk to you, sort of the, the bulk of our time together, but, uh, and that's leadership. I met you in uh, about 1987 or so, that's relatively recently. Yeah. What I have observed is that everywhere you have gone, people turn to you to act as a leader. People uh, listening probably don't know this, but you were at Montreal as a head of neurology in the Institute, which is one of the leading positions in the in the world, came to the Mass General, and within a, a short time, they asked you to lead the hospital. That was unheard of, an outsider, not just a Canadian, but just not a Mass General person uh, to lead the hospital, which is remarkable, and then became the general director of the Mass General, and then people asked you to take over the University of California, San Francisco, one of the most prestigious schools in the country, as dean, and then you became chancellor, and then Harvard invites you back to become dean at Harvard Medical School. So every step, this has happened. You're a brain scientist. What about your brain allows you to do this? Why do people turn to you, do you think? Well, I would start with what I would call the importance of transparency. You see what you get. You get what you see. The development of trust and a sense of credibility comes from everyday experiences with people. You can't buy it. You can't learn it. You've got to live it. And I think the reason I was invited to run the Mass General for a year was in a kind of interesting way, it was a, a point of contention with many of the leaders in the hospital and the guy, Charlie Sanders, who had led that for mm -hmm. very ably for nine years, left abruptly to go into industry. And I was chair of the chief service at that point. They had appointed me in my third year to that position. So I think everyone felt that having that kind of outside perspective, having not bought into all the issues that the hospital was facing, that I might be able to do it uh, dispassionately and without the kind of biases that some would have brought to it. I think being open and transparent, again, to repeat, in one's contacts with people so that there's a sense that this person has an honest credibility and you can believe what they say and you'll honor the agreements that you make. I think that's always been my guiding principle. Never tell a lie, then you don't have to remember what you said. <laughs> that's right. Well, you're certainly known for that. I mean, that's, I think, what everybody thinks about when they think about you. You have enormous credibility. These days, at least in our environment, they try to send people to courses to learn leadership. They're usually given at the business school, actually. People say, well, we're going to teach you how to be a leader. And some of what they teach people is actually financial information, how to balance the budget and so on. What's the difference in the meaning of leader of these two contexts? Your use of the term leader and their use of the term leader. It seems like it's not the same. Well, I believe there are many ways to learn on the job, if you like. And certainly taking formal educational courses of leadership can help one think in a perspective about how leadership emerges and how to, to carry it forward. But I would make a second point very important, and that is learning from those around you appointing superb people to work with you and learning from their experiences, many of them administrators of very sound principle and with knowledge of, of leadership, and watching them work and delegating to them the parts of the job that you know they can do better than you can and then learning from them. 
I would view it as a constant appreciation of the talents of people around you and learning from them in a teamwork way that allows people from outside to see that this is something that is being done as a unit, as a whole, and not just a single leader. Having said that, you have to be the representative of the group. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me today is Dr. Joseph Martin, and we're discussing developing leadership and medical education. Joe, do you think that these capacities that you just outlined are an uh, inherent function of the human brain? Some people have them and some people don't have them. This is the sort of, are you born with it or can you learn these capacities for openness, honesty, supporting other people, delegating and not being a micromanager? That's, I think, a summary of what you said so far. What do you think that is? I mean, did you have this when you were a little kid in school? You know, it's hard to reflect uh, in that way about what leads to what one becomes. And I certainly don't want to leave the impression that I represent some idealistic. I would add one further point to my list, that which you've just described. And I've always used the rule that generosity is perhaps the most important aspect of leadership. As I watch faculty come up through the ranks, and when I consider them for heads of department, the single most important thing, I think, is the transition from what I do is for me to what I do is for them. Mm-hmm. And it's to allow people around you to grow and thrive and be vicariously proud of what they accomplish without needing to take credit yourself. And I think generosity is a single component that most often uh, determines whether somebody's going to be a good department chair or hospital leader or a dean. You have to start doing what you do for the good of the whole and not just to watch your own credibility or your own reputation rise. Mm -hmm. You've been a leader, major leader, in two of the most prestigious medical centers here in the United States, at Harvard Medical School, UCSF. And uh, medical centers now are having a tough time financially, and some of them having a tough time knowing who they are exactly. What do you think the future of the academic medical center here in the United States is? Which direction should it take? Well, the business model that has evolved for successful management of our academic health centers has built into it one of the great foibles, I think, of success. And that is we do more so that we can accomplish more through new facilities, through new directions and research, all of this on the backs of a fee-for-service payment system that therefore leads to generating more tests and more consultations and more CAT scans and MRIs so that the revenue stream can then justify the next year's expenditures. And I think that system is broken. And Mm -hmm. I think that responsible leadership in our academic health centers will need to address that model in the future and figure out other ways to accomplish what needs to be done. It's the essential reason why I think healthcare reform at this point is much less than what we had hoped it would be. I wish we could talk longer, but I want to ask you one final thing, and that is you uh, have dealt a lot with medical students, and you're in our department now, and I see you deal with medical students all the time. So here's a guy who has had the highest leadership roles in the most important medical centers, and you love to talk to students. Your daughter's a doctor doing primary care. What do you tell the students now? A lot of doctors 
are discouraging their kids to go into medicine. They're pessimistic. You don't sound at all pessimistic to me. What do you tell those uh, medical students about uh, the future? Well, I still believe and say so that there is no other profession that offers as wide a range of opportunity to meet the needs, to meet the interests, to meet the goals of an individual student. The range is just almost infinite of things that you can do after medical training. And I think there's a fit there for every bright student who aspires to doing something good for other people, which is essentially what professionalism in medicine should be about. I'd like to thank my guest, the Edward R. and Ann G. Leffler Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School and former Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Joseph B. Martin. Joe, thanks so much for spending time with us today on Inspired to Act. Thank you, Marty. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.